I'm going to pray and then we're going to talk about this. Uh, this is the last um, talk we're doing on the nature of the church and what we're called to be like, what, what it looks like to follow Jesus as a Christian. So yeah, let's pray and then we'll talk about it. Father, thank you for the Bible and that you promised to show up when we spend time in it. And God, we know that we can't fabricate that, that we can't um, make anything happen that's not of you that would be life-changing. And so, Father, we ask that you'd speak in such a real way that you're undeniable, that those of us who wonder if you exist, we ask that you'd be drawing us to what you invite us into. And those of us who know you, Lord, we ask that you would help us see what you're actually calling us to, that we would see what that really looks like. In Jesus' name, amen. So, look, we've been looking at what the church is, the nature of it, what it is intended to do. And I don't know if you've seen different versions of church. You know, some might be very triumphalistic, like in an exaggerated way, where they would say, "There's no, it's just strength to strength to strength to strength, right? There's no room for pain, for suffering, for brokenness. Has anyone heard churches like that? Yeah, yeah, okay. And then there's another extreme that might be almost like a, a failureism, like you're miserable, I'm miserable, you're not good at anything, I'm not good at anything, be like that together. Almost like an emotional failureism. Have you heard churches like that maybe as well? Um, there's a, an author, uh, Kevin DeYoung, he, he suggests to consider these two options. What do you think it looks like to, to really be God's people and follow him? Here's two options. This one is from a church website and another is um, an army, a military code that a soldier would adhere to. So have a listen to both. So the church website says, here's a casual atmosphere. This is what you'll find at our church. Casual atmosphere, friendly people who will help you find a way around, dance, music videos, high-impact dramas, messages relevant to your daily life, an amazing children's space, a Starbucks-esque cafe where you can relax, recover and relate in the comfort zone, you're, you're in your comfort zone with a coffee in your hand. Uh, Saturday night extras, we have Wi-Fi zone to suit your inner geek and you will um, find that you matter to God. So there's one. Um, and the other one, uh, this is this army code. Loyalty to country, team and teammates. Serve with honour on and off the battlefield. Ready to lead, ready to fight, never quit. Take responsibility for your actions and the actions of your teammates. Excel like warriors through discipline and innovation. Train for war, fight to win, defeat our enemies, earn your trident every day. How's that? So like, there's two very different pictures of maybe what the Christian life could look like. Um, I don't know how you imagine it. It's good to think how do we imagine it. So in the first week of our series, we basically asked the question, what's the church? And so one of the images had a bunch of people there. So the church is a home for God and a home for people, that there's a connection to people because of God, because of Jesus Christ, that surpasses other normal barriers like ethnicity, gender, race, age, social status, education that there can be a bond where you're cemented together as Christians. That's unique. That's the first thing we thought about. And then last week, we're in the first chapter of this letter, which is all about passing on the faith, that this is an essential aspect of what it means to be the people of God. And that it's not just for parents, 
that it's profoundly, you know, we've got a childless single man, Paul, writes to Timothy. The first letter of, first words of each chapter, he says, Timothy, my dear son, in our chapter, you then my son, my beloved child. So this is the nature of Christian friendships that were described in family terms where not just the, the, the blood family, but the family related by Jesus' blood take responsibility for one another. It's a profound idea. And so Paul, in his last letter from the worst prison stay he had, just before, months before his beheading, uh, he was charged with being against the empire uh, for following Jesus and his beliefs. Um, He writes this. It's very personal. He's very reflective. He's near 70. He's 40 years been serving God. And he's saying, Timothy, what? just take what you know that you know, that you know, and pass that on. Just make sure you do that. The whole thing is about doing that. And so in our chapter, the focus is how do you keep doing it? Tonight is how do we do it and not give up? And what should that look like? And so he gives him three things to hold on to what's been entrusted to him and pass that on. The three things he gives is his calling, the fact that it's hard, and how God's going to help him keep doing it. Okay, His calling, the hardness of that calling, and how God's going to supply the the help to do it. Now, if you're exploring Christianity, I wanted to say, and it's wonderful that, that we would have a mixture of us in here, that some of us know Jesus, some of us are thinking about that. Um, one good question for you is to always ask the question, how do you think about the whole movement of the church? It's a good question to ask, how do you account for the growth of the Christian church in history? You know, a small phenomenon in the back end of the world now is a worldwide Christian movement. So good questions. How do you account for that? And the other question for everyone here is, how do you get in what God's up to? How do you participate in this passing on faith? Because it's not peripheral and not for a few. How do you participate in that? That's the question. So two verses, it's your whole Christian life. The first two verses summarise everything. Who you are and what you're called to do. I love this because that's it. <laughs> we could read these two verses, say a bit and go. Pretty much. There's a bit more help at the back end of this passage, but two verses are everything. Who you are, what you're called to do. So the first verse, he says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes, And then the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to rely on people who will be qualified to teach others. So his, his plan is a four-generation-out plan. He imagines that what Timothy's received from him, he passes on to others who can pass on to others. So that's implicit there. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the first statement is who he's called to be. And he says, you then, my son, be strong in the graces in Christ Jesus. This is a way of saying, be a follower of Jesus. The other, the other way we say it, a follower, is the word uh, Christians use, disciple. So you might have heard that language. So be a disciple of Jesus is the first one. The second one, pass it on, is be someone who helps others follow Jesus or make disciples. Does that make sense? So be a disciple and then make other disciples. Not manipulate them. There's no idea that you can ever overpower another person's will or impose faith. You actually can't do that. But there's this responsibility and it talks about what it looks like, that we were, how you pass that on in a way that reflects Jesus. So being a follower of him and helping others follow him, that's what this is all about. And he has a command in there 
But this says what it means to be a follower. He says, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So think about what he's saying. He's saying, be strengthened by this. Be strengthened in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. He talked about the grace last week. Listen to his summary of what Jesus has done. So he's basically saying, be strengthened by this. So here's the thing. Chapter 1, verse 9. He saved us and called us to holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. The grace was given us in Christ before the beginning of time, but it's now revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life. So he called, he saved and called, not because of what you've done, but because of his purpose and grace. He's given grace, it's been revealed through Jesus, he destroyed death, brought life. So he says everything in terms of the actions of God. But he says, I want you to be strengthened by it, build up. And it's, it's very important to stop and always think, what happens when I say, I believe that? When I believe that God did call, he did save, he did always be towards me in love, that he gave Jesus so I could live. I'm, I'm believing there that God's good, that he loves me, he sees me, and I matter to him. And I'm also changing my belief about myself, that no matter what anyone says, I don't care what I even say or even what my past says about me, Jesus says, I made you in my image, and I'm not just going to tell you I love you. He shows up in history, dies so I can live. And so I've stepped into that belief. But here he says, make that a strength in your life. Don't just know that thing. Don't just say, yep, I believe that. He's saying, be strengthened by it. Does that make sense? In other words, the grace thing, the word grace is, is the word that means undeserved favour. Okay? So when we use the word grace, we, we say it maybe every second song and in our prayers and we might say it without realising when the word grace says it means unmerited favour. All right? Something I don't deserve, I've been given. So this idea of be strengthened by the unmerited favour that's in Jesus Christ, right? He's actually saying, I want this grace, which is sort of essentially about forgiveness, to become now a power in your life, something that's empowering, that's strengthening, right? It's not incidental that when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You were never intended to live out of alignment with God. And when you do, you are taking yourself away from your greatest source of power. This idea of grace is not just a forgiveness, which it is, but it's that it becomes a power in your life. Just think about it. So I love that we have these things. I love my mobile phone. I love my laptop. I think cheap as it is, they're awesome. But I've got to remind myself consistently to plug the thing in. So this thing doesn't create energy, it consumes energy. And if I think that it creates it, it's not long and I'll be out of contact with everyone pretty much all the time. Have a listen to this psalm. It it talks about this thing of strength. So Psalm 84 verse 5 says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. So there's a relationship here. The moment your heart is set on the pilgrimage or the intention God has for your life, you actually begin to live in his strength. 
So we get to be frustrated with God when we say, I want your strength for life, but we want it for our intention, for our purpose. But God's strength doesn't come without his intention for your life. They come together because it's about being aligned with God, that your whole life is in line with what his intention for you is. So two verses later, it talks about these people who find their strength in God and it says they go from strength to strength. And the Psalms, in an unusual way, talk about the reality that life's really hard. We would sometimes think, once you get the strength factor, boo, you got all the boost you need. You know, like, so you only need one breath of oxygen for life and that's it. <laughs> but it never works like that. You've got to breathe again and again and again. All of you know, no matter how strong you ever are, you always get tired again. You know, no matter how strong or you know, a person ever becomes, they, they eventually lose that energy. So as humans, we've got to keep replenishing our strength and our energy. So the, the psalm is hinting at the fact that life is full of disappointment, crisis, conflict, crisis, conflict. And to go from strength to strength to strength is the reality of the Christian life, that you're going to have to be drawing on what God gives you for strength and then go to the next strength and to the next strength. Um. I missed the Super Bowl, and so I did a little bit of research uh, this this week just thinking about American football. And there's this one player, Jim Brown, who was they say was the greatest running back of all time. They just say he was astonishing. A beast of a man would run through a team, four or five players to take him down, you know, so many touchdowns. But what was unusual about this guy's playing style is when he gets smashed by four or five guys, he, he lies still. He's the last one to move. He gets up very slow, he's the last back to the huddle and then he's the last back to the line-up and then as soon as, you know, the whistle goes, (laughs) explodes in power. And the guys who they they were interviewing about him would say, hey, we just didn't know when this guy was going to give up, we just smashed him and then he runs straight through us again and they couldn't understand it. And he did this for two reasons. One, he never wanted anyone to be able to work out if he was injured after the tackle, ever. So if every time he gets up slow, they'll never know because he says, you know, the sharks will smell blood when they think they've hurt you. So always slow. But the second reason was huge. He said energy conservation. I had, I had to conserve my energy. So the moment the whistle went, I'd explode out of the line. They wouldn't know what hit him. There, there's something where as a follower of Christ, you're commanded here to harness your strength. It's, it's actually the right way to see your life. And there's, there's, there's a critique of the Bible all the way through the scriptures to those who are young. Because when you're young, you've got a lot of energy, <laughs> but not much wisdom. Okay, that, that, That's just a thing that when you get older, you just get envious of. That you can't do all the stuff you used to be able to do. But when you're young, you've got heaps of energy and not much wisdom. When you're older, you've got maybe a bit more wisdom, but not much energy. And the Bible is saying, listen, are you going to actually use your energy for something that you won't regret or be embarrassed by? Not necessarily it be something bad, but will you actually use it for anything right? And so the Bible's always say, with all that energy you might have, live your life with the same intention as well. Because God intends that you live a way that you're created for. We sometimes think it doesn't matter. We'll talk about that in a sec. The other thing, we know in our culture a lot about the, a lot of people burning out, hitting a wall, breakdown. And I can speak a little bit personally about this. In the first half of my life, I had three of them, and two involved hospitalisation. And so huge learning curves for me as a person. And one of the things 
we often make a mistake thinking that hard work is the thing. Too much work is, is, is what makes you hit a wall. I don't think that's true. And, and so what our normal instinct is, let's be time managers. Time management is what we need to, to create good boundaries in our life. Yes, yes, yes. But that's secondary to energy management, which is what we're talking about here. Because the truth is, for me, every burnout was always because of a misappropriation of my energy. I was giving myself to the wrong things. And it's something different when you can stop and realise, you know, like we've got all the same amount of minutes, but we don't all have the same amount of energy. And the choice that you've got to make in life is how much energy you're going to give to this minute. And we're all different. And so if you choose to be an energy manager... You actually can address each season of your life when you have more, when you have less. And so listen to what Psalm 73 says. It says, my mind and body may become weak. In fact, they will. <laughs> but God's my strength. He is mine forevermore. That's such an amazing statement. The, 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 the thing is, when you talk, we talk about the grace of God being a power, it's not like he gives us a few pills and we can pop them when we need them and get a zing. <laughs> That's not what it is. It's implicit in the sentence that the whole thing about this grace of God that we just read about is based on the self-giving of God. He's given himself. And so he says, be strengthened in the grace that's in, and then you have a name, person's name, Christ Jesus. So you get God. That's the amazing thing. He's yours forever. If you're all trying to decide to step over the line of faith or you already have and said, Jesus, I give you my life, it's the greatest transaction. You give him your brokenness, your heartache, your, your selfishness, your sinfulness, all those things, and he gives you in return life, love, forgiveness, hope. And he says, when you say, take my life, he says, well, take mine. <laughs> he gives you himself for your whole life. It's an amazing transaction. So that's the first thing. That's all he says about being a follower of Christ. And I want you to notice that it's not, it's not like incidental that the second verse says, now pass it on. I've got to tell you, our habit is to focus on what we get and not what we're called to. The reality is, these are directly related. The intention God has for us to pass on our faith to some reliable people who can pass it on to people who can pass it on is actually directly related to what he's saying about be strengthened by my grace. They go together. Most of us think, look, that's for the people who've got the gift of evangelism or something, but Paul says of all the gifts, whether you've got it or not, do that one. Do the work of evangelism. It's essential it's not peripheral. So some words that have shaped my life a lot, uh, Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, this is a prophet in the Old Testament, and when he hit a wall, he thought God had abandoned him and then realised, no, 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 God's done something deep inside me. He said, but if I say I will not mention God or speak any longer in his name, his word is in my heart like a burning fire, like a fire shut up in my bones. And he says, I am weary of keeping it in, Indeed, I cannot. Basically, this guy worked out, no, actually, he cares. The worst season of his life, no, I care about this. In fact, God has done something deep within me and I've got to respond to that. When I, I remember the night I stood out in the street near our house in the middle of the night and gave my life to Jesus. I remember literally saying, I can't do this alone anymore. 
that I have made a mess. I do not deserve you, but I desperately need you. I basically said, I give you my life. And I, I can tell you, it's not like magical or something, but the fact is God has put something in me from that time that the hope, the love, the life that I have is like a fire. I have to tell people. I don't know how it's going to come out, but I have to do something. So all my mates, the next few months, all my mates turn 18 with me, so all their parties are now 21st. I'm just a mate with them doing what you do when you hang out at 21st and stuff, but... Guys, something's changed. I had to tell them. Something's different. We, we had conversations all that, all that season of my life. I went straight into mission work. It's, it's a real thing. You've got to understand this is not just sidebar. Maybe we should be involved in this. This is essential. And so we want to briefly look, what's it look like? So that's the calling. That's the whole Christian life. Be strengthened, be empowered by what Jesus has done and who he is. And then pass it on. That's the whole deal. But what's passing it on look like, right? So verse 2, read it quick. Verse 2 says, And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people. Now, how are you going to work out they're reliable? That's a character word. The only way you're going to work it out is by spending time with someone. So it obviously involves time. And there's stuff to pass on that you know, that you've heard, that you've learned. So there's content. So I teach, I spend time with people, I work out their character. I reckon one of the best ways to think about what this thing that the church calls sometimes discipleship, which means helping others follow Jesus, by looking at the life of Jesus and how he started this movement makes so much sense because he spent all his time consistently in the, in the stories in the Bible investing in these frail, fragile men called disciples. He, he invested the word of God into them and his own life into them. Here's the thing, because his mission wasn't to run some spectacular ministry program that attracts the crowds but just collapses three years later and leaves. His mission was to make followers of every type of people, all types of people from all nations. And so that means his method was to sow his life and the word of God in individual people. That was his method. So he spent time with people. He walked with them. He talked with them. So they journeyed together, they cooked together, they ate together, they camp out together. He'd encourage them, he'd teach them, he'd equip them, he'd correct them. They'd laugh together, cry together. He'd teach them about God's kingdom and he'd model what it looks like to live the life you've been created to live. And then Paul goes, so I want you to follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate my life as I, my patterns are imitating Jesus. So just follow me. So that's how it's meant to look. It's a great way to imagine how it would be. Now, here's the rub. Those two verses that we just talked about, they're bracketed by hardship and struggle. The end of chapter 1, the end of chapter 2, that's the context of this. So you actually got to realise, Paul says in verse 3, join with me in suffering. Woo! That's actually essential here. And sometimes, it, it, you know, it's like suffering for something bigger than yourself. I think, truth be known, a lot of us think, this gets a bit weird. This is where, look, you're a pastor, you can say all that stuff, you're obsessed about this stuff. (laughs) Join with me in suffering, Paul's saying to Timothy, to every other Christian. Remember, this is a letter, not just to this dude, this is to everyone. Remember, he 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 says, this is to Timothy, my dear son. 
but he, he, he titles it and says things that obviously Timothy doesn't need him to say. Like, this is, I, I'm the Apostle Paul sent from God. <laughs> Timothy, you know, it's like me saying to Lockie, I'm writing him a letter. Dear Lockie, this is uh, Martin Kennedy, one of the pastors that came into City Baptist Church. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Unnecessary. Right? So this is to all of us through this guy Timothy's life. And just join with me in suffering. And actually, I want you to know this is, everyone's doing it. Everyone suffers for something bigger than themselves. It's an intrinsic in human beings. If you read Steve Jobs, you know, biography, when they were building the first Mac computer, Apple, what it, Macintosh thing, in his garage, the few blokes that did that, they endured a lot of hardship to make it happen. Bad work condition, bad hours, an often irritable, unsatisfied boss. But they did it because they were making something that would outlive them. And the biographer about those guys says this, those group of men saw this as the magical high point of their life. Not just Christians who, who, who like suffer for something bigger than themselves. But Paul, Paul, his last words in chapter 4 say, I fought the good fight. And that word is a word for wrestling match, agony. Literally the words for struggle. It's a struggle. In, in the, the British Lake District, there's this road, um, very steep, windy roads for cyclists, and it's well known because it's literally called the struggle. <laughs> and they say it's so steep that if you don't struggle, you'll slide back and you won't make the incline. You won't make it. And the Christian life is described like the struggle. Now, most of us think, oh, yeah, what you're saying, Martin, is, oh, yeah, life's hard, then we die, or life is a struggle. Everyone... Everyone agrees pretty much with that. But that's not what this is. This is very specific. This is a deliberate struggle that we're called to choose as a follower of Christ that most people shy away from choosing. It's a specific, particular struggle that you're invited to choose that's normal for the Christian life. But most people avoid it like the plague. So Paul gives us three images, and it's the way he understands his whole life it's the greatest missionary um, who ever lived says, this is how I understand my life. I reckon you should pay attention to this. These three images make sense of his life. So the, first, so it's the image of a soldier, an athlete and a farmer. The first one in verse 3, he says, Join with me in suffering like a good soldier for Christ Jesus. No one serving a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs but rather tries to please the commanding officer. So be a soldier. Maybe the idea here is single-mindedness. Being a soldier, if I understand my life that way, he says don't get involved in civilian affairs. He's basically saying because you're so single-minded, there are things that you could do, they're okay, they're permissible, but they're not profitable for for your life's purpose. So, So you just don't get involved in it. You choose wisely what you're going to give your energy to. And so... He says here, fight the good one, the good fight. So some people, I don't know if you think about what this might look like, some people just love a fight. You know, you like that? They'll fight the drop of a hat and they're ready to drop the hat to make it happen, right? Paul is dealing with people who love it. They love a fight. Look at verse 14. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It's of no value and only ruins those who listen. Verse 23. Don't have anything to do with the foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels 
and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. We said last week that evil has power to lead and neutral will never overcome evil. And last week that character actually leads and the fight you're called to fight is using the weapons of kindness but to engage, to not disengage. So often the church just has allowed evil to dominate in the body of Christ and, and it's why the church is, a, is, is like a bad word in, in our culture because the church in so many areas in history has been untrustworthy. And so we've, if we're going to lift the reputation of Christ, we've got to lift the reputation of the church. And we're going to be deciding what we're going to engage. But he says, fight the good way. Fight the good fight. Fight with kindness. See, there's, there's people who are quarrelling. Now I love how he says, there's no point because there's no good in it. It ruins people though. So in other words, he's saying the church shouldn't be tearing each other up, but building each other up. And so when you listen to those quarrelsome arguments, it ruins people's life who are hearing. So Paul describes that quarrelling, the word as catastrophe. That's the Greek word, quarrelling. It, it is a catastrophe. When people who apparently love Jesus and should know better gather in, in little clusters in local churches and talk in a way that's quarrelsome and ruins them, it impinges the next generation. Because as humans, we become like our forebears. You become like the people before you. You ever seen or known a group or, or a church where what the central things become the peripheral and the peripheral things become the central things? So he's saying, fight the good fight. You want to fight? Fine. Fight for the gospel. Fight for the truth that the Bible makes you wise for salvation, he says. But do it with kindness. Does that make sense? Our weapons are love and kindness. So that's the first thing. That's this image of being a single-minded soldier. But the athlete that he brings up next in the next verse is more about disciplined obedience. So look at the next verse. Verse 3. Similarly, or verse 5. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. And he's sort of referring to the idea of disciplined obedience. Um, just briefly, a few years ago, there was a man in the UK who's a marathon runner, and he did really well. This is in northern England. He finished his marathon two hours, 51 minutes, finished third. So, whew, didn't expect that. Um, all these interviews, wow, how would you go? Training, endurance was good. I was very tired, but it all paid off, this sort of thing, right? So it was all very popular. But the other runners were quite suspicious because no one had seen him overtake them during the race. And they did a little bit of investigation. And they, found, they realised that mile 20, this guy got tired, hopped on a bus, <laughs> and then hopped off at a park near the finish line, ran through the bushes onto the racetrack and finished in third place. So what do you reckon happened to him? He was stripped of his prize. Because he did not compete according to the rules. And I want to say in the strongest possible terms I can, spiritually speaking, it is so much easier to cut corners in the spiritual life. It is so tempting as a Christian to hop off at mile 20 and catch the bus and go, no worries. 
I don't know how many families I know where that's been a decision made and it's tragic. The Christian life is more like a marathon and not a sprint. So a question for you, are any of the commands of the Bible a struggle? Do you find any of them challenging or hard? Because you should. (laughs) If this is actually God's word, there is no way, if this is from God, the maker of the universe, there's no way you could possibly agree with my life all the time. No way. You know, there's parts of this that offend our culture, the exclusivity of Jesus, that there's only one way to God, or um, the ideas uh, for human flourishing, for a husband and wife, and all the things that this might talk about. That offends our culture, but it doesn't offend Muslim culture at all. They, they don't mind those two. They get offended by the statements, forgive your enemies. They hate that. That's offensive. You've got to know this will offend us. This is not culturally bound because it's from God. Every culture loves the Bible and also is challenged by the Bible. So what I'm saying to you is, this is the main thing. If, if you're never challenged to go out of your comfort zone for God, the point is for the, using your strength for someone else, then it's a really good possibility that you've hopped the bus at mile 20. Let's leave that with you. Um, the last one is this image of farmer. And so here's the thing. An athlete can be famous, um, you know, a soldier, Those guys can be heroes. But what's a farmer get? (laughs) Basically diddly squat, pretty much. The idea of the farmer is patience and hard work. Because the thing for them, rain, hail or shine, it's daily plotting. No matter the condition, that's got to get up. Tend to the garden, tend to their field. So often not seeing any results because they don't come in days and weeks For a farmer, they come in months and seasons. So Paul's saying, you want to see growth in your life, or if you want to see growth in someone else's life, it's going to take patience and hard work. That is the only way. So every day, no matter the conditions, in faith the farmer gets up, hoping that he'll receive some sort of harvest for his work. My question is, have you seen that in anyone else's life? Have you seen that in your own life at all? The Christian life is, is far less like, like launching a rocket. <laughs> there we go! Then now it's gone. Then tending a garden. So there's the three things. And the question is, how are we going to sustain that calling in the midst of hardship? How are you going to keep going? Three things Paul says together. Verse 7, think about these things. He says, stop and think. Think about this stuff. It's very powerful. And by basically, he doesn't mean hit the books, go to the library, go to Bible college, study these images and this work. They can do that, but he's not saying that here. He's not about more information, but meditation. He's saying, don't just go, cool, I'm done. That's, that's not what the Christian life's like. You don't just shut the thing and ignore it. The point is, I can't do it for you. No one can. Try to think, how could this work in your life? As a human being, the unique thing you have that no other creature has is you can imagine a future that's never been created. You can imagine a world that doesn't exist and a life that hasn't been lived. Animals can't do that, but you can. That's what makes us uniquely human. So how could this apply to me? Ask yourself questions like, 
Is there any areas in my life where I need more obedience? Are there any areas of my life that are crying out for more single-mindedness? Any areas of my life where I need to be more patient with people? That's the first thing. And then he says, reflect on these things. I love what he says straight because he was a promise. For the Lord will give you understanding and insight into this stuff. God's going to help you work it out. It's profound. It's just like a verse in James. Anyone ask for wisdom says God gives generously to all without finding fault. It's an amazing statement. He says, I'll just give it to you. Ask for it, I'll give it to you. It's beautiful. So he's saying the, the, the idea is that you don't just think about it. That as you think about it, you ask God, God, what, how's this work in my life? Then you think a bit more. God, what's it mean that I, it could be anything. How, how do I care more for this friend in my life? God, I need help with this. What's it mean that I might actually have a life of greater intention with you than I already have? I can't do it for you, but this is what he's saying to do. And there's a promise attached that God will give you wisdom. The second thing he says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Christ Jesus who's risen from the dead. And and the truth you've got to take here, this is in the next verse, but is not just remember him like in the abstract. Oh, yeah, Jesus, cool. Slow down and actually think specifically about what Jesus has done for you. And it's amazing how this is, a, this is the, one of the central ways that you gain strength, that you actually get that power. Let me read some stuff I wrote. Just see Jesus joining in suffering so that other people can have hope. Remember Jesus, the ultimate single-minded soldier, who says, I will always do what my Father commands, and set his face towards heading to Jerusalem, knowing that execution awaited. Remember Jesus, the ultimate athlete who endures the cross, finishes the race in the knowledge that other people will find hope through him. So he runs the race. He doesn't cut any corners. He drinks the cup of suffering right down to the dregs. Remember Jesus, our patient and loving farmer, who the night before he goes to the cross, he's in a garden and dripping blood. It says he sweated blood. It was that intense. He couldn't walk. He's basically planting his blood in a garden so that we might be raised to life through him. And the last thing Paul shows us here is think of the reward. Think of the reward. Um, if you interviewed Paul, this guy who wrote this letter, these are the last words of history this bloke wrote. So some say this is like his last will and testament. If you said, hey, mate, so was it worth it? You know, before you were this Jesus guy, um, that you were wealthy, had status and power, you are a, a well-known person in your city and well-loved. But once Jesus came into your life, everything got hard. You know, you became homeless, you lacked resources, you had physical suffering and even heart suffering for what was going on. You're glad you did it. And he's already answered us, chapter 4, verse 6. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. So, verse 7, chapter 4, he says, 
I, these are the famous words. You might have heard them from Bon Jovi, but they're better here. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race and I've kept the faith. The word keep there is an agricultural term for tending a garden. There's our three images. The soldier, the athlete, the farmer. That's how Paul thinks his whole life. That's how it makes sense. Everything makes sense. The big goal for him. And he says, now I'll receive the crown of righteousness that God's going to give me. He's looking forward to what's next. Death, he says, basically is an adventure for him because there's a whole new world ahead. And he says, I receive a crown. And sure, it's to enjoy God fully and forever. But he says in Philippians 4 verse 1 to the people he writes, you're my crown. You are my crown. In other words, his goal was that others might come to know the love of God. And that was the overarching way that made sense of his life. I, I don't reckon, you think about those terms, soldier, athlete, a lot of us think, oh, there's a lot of uh, self-control. You know, last week we heard the, um, the Holy Spirit gives power, love and self-discipline. I actually don't believe you primarily want self-control. You want your life to cohere. You want it to make sense. And what I mean by, imagine if I see myself like Paul as an athlete, what if in our contemporary day, they, they imagine people at the Isthmian Games, which is like their Olympics, imagine me saying, I'm going for the Olympics in four years. And that means I'm on a whole new lifestyle, everything. I'm not going to half the parties. I've got to get to bed by 1030 I can't eat sweet desserts. I just can't have that stuff. I'll be training certain days of the week. I won't be hanging out. Why? Because that's my goal. And see, because that's my goal, everything else is okay. It's no, it's no brainer to not eat that salad, eat the salad, not eat, not eat the sweets. It's a no brainer, isn't it? Because that's my goal. Paul says, my goal is that other people might know the blessing of the gospel. And because that's his goal, he's happy to be inconvenienced for others, to use his strength and power for other people, not to coerce them, not to hurt them, but to give them life. It's a great way to understand your life. It's not about self-control. It's about your whole life cohering together. If your big goal is there, it makes sense with everything else. You're living with greater intention. So I want to encourage you to consider that that's essential for the Christian. Be a follower of Jesus and help others be followers of Jesus. It just comes down to that. And I encourage you that um, this guy describes what God does as unstoppable. Can't stop it. (laughs) So might as well get with it. (laughs) So I'm going to pray. Father, thank you that you're real and that you have changed my life. I thank you that um, I'm standing here because... Um, you gave me real hope and, and that there's life and love that I couldn't find anywhere else that's genuinely from you. And I thank you that there are many people who each of us might know who've also received that through what you've done in their lives. And we ask that you would help us to step into a life of greater intention. You never created us to live with a low intention but the highest intention. And God, forgive us Forgive us for just wanting to catch the bus at mile 20. Forgive us for wanting to just unplug from what you've called us to and actually are giving us power for. So we ask that you would help us to see other people the way you see them, to see them with compassion, to serve them the way we see Jesus serving people, 
people different from him, not requiring people to do anything to know you, but actually telling them that you offer relationship that is received, is not earned. So God, please help us not put things in the way, barriers in the way of people knowing you. Please help us not say no for people, but let them say no for themselves. God, it's so exciting that you have plans for people that are bigger than our plans and plans for us that are bigger than us. I thank you that we're here because other people made their life about other people. And we ask you to help us be the same, that we would actually revel in what you've given us, be strengthened by, by you, and entrust that to other people. Please help us step into what you've called us to. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.